This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show, and back to the studio for, well, it's been a long time. I think the last time you were here, Alexandra Kennedy, was pre-COVID, but we are so pleased to have you back. For those of our listeners from this name does not ring a bell, Alexandra Kennedy is the executive director of the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art, and she is here with us because we want to celebrate, and there is lots to celebrate. It is the 20th anniversary. Yep. The official date just passed, just yep. recently. Yep. 20th anniversary of the Eric Carl Museum. I'd like to want to talk about what's at the museum today and now and what we can see and experience and enjoy and love at the Carl. I'd like to start with your reflections. You've been the executive director. Wow. 16 years. 14 years. 14 years. 14, yeah. Wow. 20 years that the Carl has been as part of this community, I would appreciate your reflections on this magnificent institution that is so much a part of the Valley. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, it's been, a, it's been a bittersweet anniversary, you know. It's, it's coming at the, you know, we were, we were planning for this in the midst of this crazy pandemic and lockdowns and everything else, and it feels so good this year just to have people coming back and coming from all over the country and visiting us again. It just is, uh, I can't tell you how sweet that is. Uh, we have had, uh, in our 20 years, almost a million visitors. If we had not had to lock down, we probably would have hit a million uh, by our 20th anniversary. And, you know, one of the things that I love is that we are part of the fabric of this local community. We have so many members who come see us virtually every week and wander around with their kids and are tuned into every little thing we do. But we also get people from all over the country coming here. And that's something we're really proud of. And we try to send them around to all the great sites that are here and make sure they have a great experience. The other thing that's kind of exciting to me is in the last five or 10 years, we've built a really big traveling exhibition program. You know, picture books are, are, have not traditionally been shown in museums. And that's changing really quickly. And we have exhibitions all over the U.S. traveling abroad. We have an exhibition traveling. We have three exhibitions right now traveling in Japan. Um, and people are realizing, like, this is art everyone can get excited about, everyone can relate to. So you have multiple generations, you know, grandparents, parents, kids going into museums around the world to see picture book art and introducing kids to the, you know, the joys of the museum experience. So we get between 500,000 and 750,000 people a year seeing our traveling exhibitions. So it's really fun to think about how we sort of start all this in Amherst and then we ship it out into the world and even more people get to see it. I'd like you to talk more about that because I remember, I think I'm just going to date myself here, what the heck, um, that when Eric Carl presented this idea of a museum of yeah. picture book art there were a few people, more than a few people, who rolled their eyes and said, we're going to have a museum yeah. for picture book art? Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. That has dramatically changed. And I think it has dramatically changed across the spectrum of uh, those who are serious artists yep. and museum curators. Yep. And I think that is actually attributable to the Carl. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think, I think, I think we're a big piece of that. And you know, there's another museum here that I think has contributed to that, too, and that's the Norman Rockwell Museum. Um, you know, we're big believers in illustration. We, it's sort of the most democratic art form. You know, it's one that we can all get exposed to from a very early age. And uh, it's, been a, um, it's been really um, 
very affirm, affirming to us to see museums like the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, which is you know the biggest museum in the South, um, the New York Historical Society in New York. These have had multiple exhibitions um, that they're borrowing from us. And when I came to the Carl 14 years ago, I never could have imagined that we were going to have museums 20 times the size of the Carl interested in taking our exhibitions, but they are. And they see the value of, of introducing young people to the art form that they know and love and helping them think about creativity and storytelling and just the, the art of doodling, trying things, making things. And so these exhibitions have many different layers that people really relate to and enjoy. So that has been um, not something Eric and Bobby, I think, ever imagined was going to happen, that it was going to take off in that way. Um, but, you know, they understood the power of these books and the power of this art very early on. And they got inspired by, by uh, museums they had seen in Japan. They traveled in Japan in the 80s and 90s. And they were seeing these picture book museums. And they were like, I didn't know there was any such thing as a picture book art museum. Some of them were really small. Some of them were sort of on the scale of the Carl. But that's kind of how they got the idea. They came back from Japan and were sort of like, why don't we have something like this in the U.S.? And now it's interesting that you have a touring exhibit in Japan where they've exactly. appreciated this all along. Exactly. So much to ask you about, given what you've just commented on, Alex. I, I'd like to know, well, I'd like to stop here. You mentioned Bobby. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Carl, everyone called her Bobby. Yeah. Uh, they were a team. They yeah. were an amazing team. And they were an amazing team to, to create this museum. And I'd appreciate your sharing some of that with our listeners. Yeah, uh, they were... You know, all of us who knew and, and cared about Eric and Bobby could see that they were um, deeply committed to each other. They were really just one of those couples you knew, loved each other. They were really honest with each other. They brought out the best part of each other. Um, it, was, it was really something wonderful to be around. Uh, and they made this decision together to start the museum. And, you know, Eric had a lot to do with the design. He was really committed to the building, working with Earl Pope, a, a local architect, to kind of create the most beautiful building he could. I think Eric thought of the building itself as a work of art. Um, Bobby was really committed to getting the museum off the ground. You know, she was really about making sure that all the pieces were in place, the right people were there. Um, they were very involved early on. And then they, they did a smart thing, which uh, is hard to do, which is they stepped away after several years, realizing, like, it's got to take off on its own, and we've got we've to get back to having our own life, too. But, um, but Bobby was a force. And, you know, when, um, when she passed away, she died in 2015. Shortly after she died, Eric was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. And he, there's, they, they quoted him. And it's, it's always touched me because it's, it was so Eric. He said, uh, Bobby was the force behind the museum, and she was the force behind me. Bobby has in her memory, or there is in her memory, a garden. Yeah, yeah. Tell our listeners who've never been there, and if you haven't been, you should go, because it is a beautiful, ah, contemplative space. Tell thank us about you. that. Yeah, after Bobby died in 2015, the board of the museum decided they wanted to build a, build a, um, like a park to, in honor of Bobby, that's um, part of the museum. We call it Bobby's Meadow. Uh, and it's a beautiful walking, sitting space right adjacent to the museum. Um, as you know, the museum is in an old apple orchard. It's like a 120-year-old apple orchard. And um, we wanted to find a way to kind of bring people into that space, but also to think about it from a kind of environmental point of view. So we, we did a couple of things. One, um, we built walkways that were accessible. Um, 
Bobby was an, uh, was an uh, early childhood educator. One of the things she did was with a, her partner, she started a um, school in Montague that was for um, young children, and they were integrated classrooms, so abled and disabled children in the same classroom. So that was something that was really important to her, the idea of accessibility. So we wanted a space where people in wheelchairs, uh, people with strollers could easily get out into the meadow and enjoy that beautiful space. But the other thing we did is we took our cues from Hampshire College and some of the other places in South Amherst, and we wanted to reintroduce meadow. Um, you know, we've lost a lot of meadow habitat uh, in, <laughs> in New England, everywhere. Um, and so we, um, we are, uh, we have developed, redeveloped a meadow that surrounds some of the oldest parts of the orchard. And we've brought in about 20 native plants, uh, wildflowers and grasses. And um, it's been really beautiful to watch each season as this sort of takes on its own life. And we have so many, so many birds and so much wildlife we've never had before coming. But visitors love it because they can go out and spot all these wonderful things, especially lots of caterpillars. I'd like to move us, Alexandra Kennedy, from the outside, which is gorgeous, uh, to the inside of the museum and share this very brief story. Eric Carl had his studio on Main Street in Northampton mm -hmm. for many years. Mm -hmm. And one evening I was there with a few people, and Eric Carl took out some scissors and uh, I... And, and may, maybe an exacto knife of some sort. Yeah, yeah. And he had a few pieces of miscellaneous paper, and he made a few cuts. He did this and that, and it was like magic. Yeah. Just oh, yeah. created this yeah. scene, this picture. Yeah. Um, and, and then he offered it to us. Uh, I mean, it, was, it, was, it was just one of the most amazing yeah. experiences I've ever had to see. Yeah. Art created like that. In yeah. just, it, was, it was like magic oh, yeah. the way he did it. Yep. I'd appreciate your thoughts. Yeah, no. One of the things that is so um, is so moving to us, and and is how people of all ages take to making collage. And Eric had his own, which way, the very hungry caterpillar which the very is. Hungry caterpillar's collage, brown bear's collage. Most of Eric's books are collage, and Eric would paint his own papers. So he didn't use store bought colored tissue papers. He would buy his own white tissue papers and paint them. And that was a whole different process for Eric. He would spend time in his studio just creating papers. And then he had these flat files, and it would be like everything that was pink and everything in one drawer and everything reddish in the next drawer and everything orangish in the next drawer. And he would is use... That, is that how he, ca ca he categorizes orangish, orangish, reddish? <laughs> and he would... And then so the most famous collage person in the universe, <laughs> reddish, orange, I added, green. I added, I added, <laughs> be exact about it. I added the ish part. But he would, when he was then making a book, he would go look for papers. So he didn't make the papers so he could make the book. He would then be working on a book and he'd say, you know, I need something for the sky here. And he'd start to pull out different drawers and look for something that really touched and moved him. So it was sort of like his palette. That was how he, that was, that was, his, that was his paint, was these tissue papers. So you got to watch him and it was f so much fun to watch him tear and use an X-Acto knife because it was like, it was so natural to him. It was, he, it, like, it was like he didn't have to think. It was just like a second part of his hand, you know. And um, so we all love watching him make collage, too. But that's very special that you've got that. One other aspect of the Carl that I find really moving and uh, forward-looking in terms of the planning is the way in which it is set up to engage young people. Yeah, yeah. And for those of our listeners, I assume there are a few who haven't been to the Carl. I mean, yeah. we're talking about almost a million visitors yeah, in yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Tell us about how the museum is set up to actually accommodate and engage young people. Yeah, when the museum was developed, they were very aware that for many children, this was going to be their first art museum experience, and it's not a children's museum. And so how do you bring children into an art museum and make them feel welcome and at home and engaged? So we have an art studio. Whenever the museum's open, you can go into our art studio and make things that are inspired by the things you might see in our galleries. You can go into our uh, auditorium and hear an artist who you admire up on stage uh, reading from their books and talking about their process. Uh, we have a reading library where we do story times. In our galleries, we have comfortable seating spaces. We often have drawing in the galleries so that children can sit and adults can sit and draw and look up on the wall and be inspired by the things around them. So I, I feel like a lot of what we're trying to do is is encourage drawing, doodling, drawing, serious drawing, not serious drawing. For those who don't drawing. know, <laughs> Monty doodles pretty much every show. Monty creates a portrait every show, and uh, uh, Alex was just pointing You're the to victim now, Alex, unfortunately. <laughs> There's literally see. thousands of drawings of Bill Newman, though, that exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we thought about having a Monty exhibit and maybe selling them someday as a fundraiser, but I really demand that I have some uh, say, <laughs> say about what ones. goes. You know what I wanted to do for the Franklin County Fair? I wanted to submit 1,000 drawings of Bill Newman <laughs> and have them display all of them. <laughs> See if I want any blue ribbons. I think we could put that in one of our galleries. <laughs> That'd be fun. It's, it's only become art because it's so absurd at this point. <laughs> we are speaking with Alexandra Kennedy. She's the executive director of the Eric Carl Museum of Picture Book Art. This is the 20th anniversary of the Carl. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and we're going to learn about what is at the Carl for us to enjoy today. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. This Bonafide Minute is brought to you by New England Orthopedic Surgeons of Western Mass. Your shoulder. It's one of the largest and most complex joints in your body, consisting of the bones of the upper arm, shoulder blade, and collarbone, and the rotator cuff, a collection of muscles and tendons that not only surround the shoulder, but give it support and a wide range of motion. Hi, this is Dr. Jenny Garber, arthroscopic and shoulder surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Competitive hockey and basketball players can sustain shoulder injuries such as shoulder separation and dislocation and tears of ligaments and tendons from sliding into the boards, falling on the ice or court, or direct contact. But shoulder sprains, strains, and tears can also occur in us regular folks at Sunday pickup games, during dreaded winter shoveling, or even through wear and tear over time. So whether you're a professional athlete, weekend warrior, or someone in between, you can trust the team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons to give you the best bona fide care around. Visit neortho.com to schedule your appointment today. I see somebody dressed up as uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer running. We have uh, someone as a Christmas tree. It yes. looks like they are wearing pine needles. Yes. I don't know if that makes it more or less fun to run in. This Sunday, the hot chocolate run for safe passage is 
back. And WHMP will be there live, broadcasting from the run in downtown Northampton. Safe Passage is the Hampshire County organization addressing domestic violence. you still got time to sign up to run, walk, or volunteer. Then share your fundraising page with family and friends to create year-round support for survivors of domestic violence. Join us live in person in downtown Northampton this Sunday, or join us right here on WHMP for the live broadcast of the Hot Chocolate Run for Safe Passage. When you look at this event, does it say something to you about Northampton as a community? It's a remarkable testament to what people can do when they're all working on the same issue. WHMP's support of the Hot Chocolate Run is made possible by Whalen Insurance Northampton. Local people, local service, local insurance. It happens all over Massachusetts. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. We'll see you at practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Alexandra Kennedy, who is the executive director of the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art on this, the 20th anniversary of the Carle, which is, Alex, in a really big way, and you started with these words or something close to them, it's very sad in some ways. Yeah. Because Eric passed yeah. a year ago in May. Yeah. Um, and he was a force of nature. And, it was. and as I said, one of those beautiful, gentle human beings, yeah. not to mention most creative persons I've ever met. Um, but I'm wondering if you could share uh, your thoughts with regard to that aspect of this anniversary. Yeah, so we, um, you know, it was, it was obviously a very, it was tough. We couldn't see Eric with the pandemic. And um, he was, um, he was 91. Um, and we knew he wasn't doing well, and we knew where this was going, but it's still really hard. You know, he was such a huge figure to so many people. Um, when the news went out the night, the day that he died, um, actually went out a few days after he died, when the news went out, we were at the museum. The whole staff just came to the museum at one time, and there were reporters calling from all over the world trying to ask us for quotes and find out what happened, and he had a huge impact. Um, and one of the things that, uh, that when we were on the break I was telling you about was at the end, I, I wondered whether the New York Times would include Eric for the lives they lived, and I thought they would. I would have been surprised if they hadn't. But they contacted us in the fall. Um, so that's the issue that they do at the end of the year where they honor people who passed away that year. And they contact us uh, at the end of the, in the fall. They said they'd really like to work with us on something to do, you know, something that they could do f to honor Eric. And I was like, work with us. You know, you're the New York Times. So like, what do you want? You know, I just tell us what you need and we'll give it to you. We're like, no, we really want to work with you. We want to understand what's, what's in the collection there and what could we do that would represent Eric. So we're like, okay. So we ended up having this sort of back and forth with them. It was a really kind of creative process. And we're going through the collection. We keep all of Eric's work at the museum and we're going through and we're finding... And it's shown from time to and time. And we show it. We always have his work on view in our galleries. And so we're pulling out, you know, book dummies he'd done for these, you know, the little tiny comp books that he would do before he would create a book. 
We're pulling up art that he made as an art student um, when he was a teenager. We're pulling, we're trying all these different things, and they're interested, they're looking, and then we, they ask us to show some things from his studio, and we send them a picture of his shoes. So Eric would buy these beautiful black lace-up Italian shoes, and he would wear them as his street shoes, his daily shoes, until they got old, and then he would turn them into his studio shoes. And every day he'd go in and he'd put on his smock and he'd put on these shoes. The old comfortable shoes. The old comfortable shoes. And they're splattered in paint. They have, like you look at them and they're covered in all the colors you think of with Eric Carle. Like all those vibrant, beautiful, beautiful colors. So we send them a picture and they're like, that's it. And they ended up creating an entire, um, uh, entire, uh, uh, feature around the, the shoes that people wore who passed away that year. So there's Eric's shoes are on the cover, the most beautiful photograph. And then inside are like Hank Aaron's cleats, you know, uh, like, a, a, you know, beautiful dancers, toe shoes. I mean, just these beautiful shoes representing different people's lives. And it was the most beautiful feature and just felt like such a, to us, such a beautiful way to honor Eric. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. I'd like to go back to something you told us about in our conversation in the first segment, and that is the national traveling exhibits, yeah. because not everyone can make it to Amherst, Massachusetts, yeah, that's right. but many people yeah. can visit their local museums, yep. and the reach of the Carl, the influence of Eric Carl yep. and Bobby, yep. um, is something that I think the 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 museum itself has fostered, and, yeah. and I'd appreciate your telling us a bit more about how that actually works. How, yeah. yeah. So we um, typically uh, will send, uh, will tour uh, five or six different exhibitions in a year, um, and that's, <clears throat> that's original art. So they're either works from our collection or works we've borrowed, and then we put them out to other museums. And we also um, send around two exhibitions that we created with the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh. And those are not exhibitions that we've ever had at the museum. They're traditional children's museum exhibitions that are very interactive. And one is themed around Eric Carle, and the other themed around your friend Mo Willems. And those are huge hits. And they go to children's museums all over the world. And then, in the middle of the pandemic, uh, a wonderful patron we have created a duplicate of the Eric Carle one to travel in Taiwan and China. And that has been, as they've been able to open them, given you know where they are in the, in the pandemic, th those have been traveling in China. So it's just, it's so thrilling to us to imagine these exhibitions just going to so many different places. Um, and we've, we've learned a lot from these, with the original art museums, uh, original art exhibitions, we've learned a lot from the museums we've worked with. We've had great partnerships. I mentioned before the High and the New York Historical Society. We've done five or six exhibitions with each of them, and they can, of course, get huge audiences. Um, but they also have a lot of resources, lots of people. And so that's helped us with our kind of exhibition game. You know, we get better and better at this. Um, and um, because they have huge staffs, lots of resources, they can create lots of additional materials for educators. Um, and what we have is all that knowledge about picture books. So it's a really good partnership for us. Do they contact you? Do you reach it, out? It works in different ways. Um, now that we have those partnerships, we'll go to them and let them know what we have coming up, and they can tell us whether there's something they're interested in. Sometimes other museums will come to us. Um, you know, we had an exhibition at, um, at the Boston MFA, you know, uh, our Robert McCloskey show, and, like, who would think that 
you know, the Little Eric Carl Museum in Amherst would have a show at the MFA, but we did. And that's a, you know, that's just a sign of the ways in which museums want to attract these younger audiences, want to appeal to these young families. Um, and also the way in which the the distinctions of 20 years ago when the museum opened, it was like illustration was seen as sort of not fine art. It was like a, it, because it was reproduced, it was seen as a lesser art form. That's that, that, that whole kind of notion of dividing art into different categories is sort of going away. Good art is good art. If it's a, if it's a great illustrator, it's a, it's great art. Right. And the influence on kids is something I would like to have you comment on for a moment, because I remember a conversation with some, some young people and they had that very hungry caterpillar out in front of them. And I said, I, I knew the man who drew that. And I went, oh, yeah. you knew him? Yeah, yeah. I, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, yeah. and, and the way it influences kids and their feeling about yeah. it, it's art that's kind of their art. It, it is. It's their art. And I also, we love to connect children with the artists because when they meet these artists, yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're huge to them, but, but it's also, they're human beings. They, they, yes, they're talented artists, but they also, it's a craft. They work hard at it. They, they make mistakes. They, they try again and again and again so that children can look at that and say, well, I could do that. I could keep working at this and working at this and working at this. So I, we like to also, you know, as much as we like to sort of hold up these artists as so um, acclaimed and wonderful, we also like to say, but they're real people and they work hard at this. Yeah, and they make mistakes all the time and yeah. over and over and over again, and they yeah. keep working at it. Yeah. And it's art that the kids can say, yeah. I maybe I could do that That's or something right. like that. That's right. And it's, it really is an inspiration to yeah. them. Yeah. So, Alex, Alexandra Kennedy, I'd like to ask you this. The car, of course, is a living, breathing institution. You have exhibits that uh, are present now they yep. will not be there forever yep. and they change yep. so tell us what's at the carl today so today we have till the end of the year we have um a celebrating collage which is our 20th anniversary exhibition we have art by 20 different collage artists eric of course other masters of the form friends of eric's his mentor leah leone his friend ezra jack keats but also some of the the young illustrators working today in collage who are just brilliant Oge mora and Christian Robinson and uh, Elizabeth Zunon, wonderful young illustrators. So we really like to show this sort of full, full suite of uh, what's being done in collage today. So that's wonderful because it's so tactile. People can go in and see how different the art looks in, in its kind of textured form. Uh, we just opened a show in our central gallery called Recent Acquisitions. This is art we've brought into our collection in the last five years. We have more than 9,000 works in our collection in now. In the collection? Yeah, in our permanent collection. Wow. More than 250 artists, and it spans a little more than 9, 100 years. 9,000 pieces Isn't in that the collection. Incredible? And so, how many can you have out at any one time? Or? We have about 60 in that in that central gallery right now. So we can only show a tiny fraction of what's in our collection. But you do show it on, it's we on do. a regular basis. We do. Basis. We regularly get it out there, and that's what it's there for. It's there so that we can preserve it and conserve it, but also so we can share it. And one more in our Eric, Cal Eric Carl Gallery, we have uh, we are celebrating the this anniversary. Is this is now we are celebrating the anniversary of many of Eric's books. So we have lots and lots of books. Some you would know, some you wouldn't know. There to sh to celebrate their twentieth anniversaries too. I hate to end on a pedestrian note, but what are the hours for the Carl? The hours we're back to pretty normal hours, but we're open Wednesdays to Sundays. We used to be open Tuesdays to Sundays, so Wednesday to Sunday. During the week, we're in 10 to 4, and on the weekends, we're 10 to 5 and 12 to 5. 
Well, thank you so much for coming in and celebrating with, celebrating with us the 20th anniversary of the Eric Carle Museum of Picture Book Art. I just love that institution. Oh, I love you, the Carle. Thank you so much, Alexandra Kennedy, for being with us. Thanks for everything the Carle does oh, for the Valley. Thank you, Bill. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMB News, I'm Jess Tyler. The Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee will meet tonight amid some controversy over an artificial turf field at the high school. The Gazette reports member Peter Demling will ask the panel to adopt a motion that reminds the committee to refrain from knowingly violating school committee policies, including the expectation that members abide by and carry out all committee decisions. This comes after committee member Jennifer Schiello has tried to stop the project, including opposing it on a public blog due to concerns over possible PFAS chemicals contained in the turf. Back from the brink, an organization that hopes to bring fundamental change to U.S. nuclear policy will honor local legislators for their support. Dr. Ira Helfand of Northampton says they're grateful for the support. We're going to be honoring Congressman Jim McGovern, State Representative Lindsay Sabadosa, and State Senator Joe Comerford, and also Sister Mary Caritas, the former president of Mercy Medical Center in Springfield, who have all played a key role in promoting this campaign and bringing it to public attention. Dr. Helfen says they're trying to draw attention to the fact that we may be on the brink of nuclear war. This could happen at any moment, if not between the United States and Russia, then between the United States and China, or between India and Pakistan, or on the Korean Peninsula. The event will be held on December 4th at the Drake in Amherst. The Ashfield Select Board will not introduce new noise bylaws after the recent public forum on gun noise. A Nashville resident presented a bylaw proposal at the forum that would prohibit people from making any unreasonably loud and disturbing noise. But the select board opted against this or any other new bylaw as it could potentially make the town vulnerable to lawsuits. Mostly sunny and cooler, highs 42 to 46. Tonight, look for increasing clouds, overnight lows 28 to 32. And the outlook for Wednesday, mostly cloudy with rain and wind in the afternoon, highs in the low to mid-50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El presidente Joe Biden pidió el lunes al Congreso que interviniera y bloqueara una huelga ferroviaria antes de la fecha límite del próximo mes en el estancamiento de las negociaciones contractuales y la presidenta de la Cámara de Representantes, Nancy Pelosi, dijo que los legisladores adoptarían una legislación esta semana para imponer el acuerdo que los sindicatos acordaron en septiembre. Permítanme ser claro, un cierre ferroviario devastaría nuestra economía, dijo Biden en un comunicado. Sin el tren de carga, muchas industrias estadounidenses cerrarían. En un comunicado, Pelosi dijo, somos reacios a eludir el proceso de ratificación estándar para el acuerdo tentativo, pero debemos actuar para evitar una huelga ferroviaria nacional catastrófica que detendría nuestra economía. Pelosi dijo que la Cámara no cambiaría los términos del acuerdo de septiembre, lo que desafiaría al Senado a aprobar el proyecto de ley de la Cámara sin cambios. El acuerdo de septiembre que piden Biden y Pelosi es una ligera mejora con respecto a lo que recomendó la Junta de Árbitros en el verano. En otras informaciones, gaslighting, definido como manipulación de la mente, groseramente engañoso o francamente engañoso, es la palabra del año de Merriam-Webster. 
Las búsquedas de la palabra en merriamwebster.com aumentaron 1740% en 2022 con respecto al año anterior. Pero sucedió algo más. No hubo un solo evento que generara picos significativos en la curiosidad, como suele ocurrir con la palabra elegida del año. Esto significa que el gaslighting fue generalizado. Es una palabra que ha aumentado tan rápidamente en el idioma inglés y especialmente en los últimos cuatro años que en realidad fue una sorpresa para mí y para muchos de nosotros, dijo Peter Sokolowski, editor general de Merriam-Webster. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is what is our usual Monday, but this week is Tuesday, Black in the Valley segment with our segment host, Professor Kari Tartikoff and the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Let me turn the microphone over to Professor Kari Tartikoff. The pleasure of the introduction of our very special guests today is yours, Carly. Good morning, and these are very special guests. These are um, some of the members of the Community Safety Working Group that spearheaded Amherst's creation of departments and focused on promoting diversity and equity and establishing an unarmed alternative to police. And they're being recognized tomorrow uh, with an award that is given annually by the Amherst Media. It is called the Jean Haggerty Award for Community Engagement and Social Change. And it's going to be presented at the Augustus Savage Gallery in New Africa House at the University of Massachusetts. And, but with us today is Alexis Reed, who is representing Amherst Media. She is the production uh, director. So before we uh, talk to the recipients, Alexis? Yeah, hi. Um, Are you, yeah, would you start by telling us uh, about the award? Absolutely, um, and thank you so much for having us today. Um, just as a recap, right, I'm, I'm Alexis Reed. I'm the director of production at Amherst Media. And if you don't know who we are, we're actually the oldest continually operating local access TV station in the country. And the core of what we do lies in preserving Amherst history, as well as supporting community-led media to not only inform our community, but also to inspire civic engagement. And so the Gene Haggerty Award is an award for community engagement and social change, like you said, which speaks directly to our organizational values. Um, it was named in honor of a beloved former Amherst Media board member and program producer, Jean Haggerty, who was also a well-known community activist advocating for free speech and social justice. And some past awardees um, have included Isaac Ben Ezra, Judy Brooks, the Amherst League of Women Voters, Elsie Fetterman, and most recently, Drs. Carly and 
Gary Tartikoff. Um, and the award is really meant to honor the individuals or organizations that represent a commitment to community engagement to obtain social change. And that's why this year we're honoring the Community Safety Working Group or the CSWG of Amherst for pushing the town to address racial disparities by working with and amongst the community. And like you were saying, the fruits of their labor are already manifesting with the creation of the Community Responders for Equity, Safety and Service or better known as CRESS, and our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, department. So we want to thank them officially for their service, and we'll be presenting them with the award tomorrow evening. Yes, and at what time is that uh, program going to start? Absolutely. So the reception will begin at 6.30, and the ceremony will begin at 7 p.m. Right, and it's at New Africa House, uh, the Augustus Savage, um, uh, museum. Yeah, just more specifically, yes, at the uh, Augusta Savage Gallery, which is on the first floor of the New Africa House mm -hmm. at, at UMass, and there's an accessible entrance um, towards the back of the building on the left. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to going in and being there. For the past couple of years, we haven't been able to do it in person, and so it will be great to see the new recipients uh, in person this year. Absolutely. And there's, a, just to add, there's going to be food, you'll get a chance to meet members and our board, board of directors, and we're going to be celebrating some of our community's great accomplishments. You won't want to miss it. Nope. I'll be there. I, I'd like to hear, if I might, from, I'd love to hear from the recipients, and I'd love to know more about the uh, two different aspects, the, the fruits of the labor of the Community Safety Working Group, um, which are, of course, uh, CRESS and DEI, um, and there are two different aspects, both of which are taking off in terms of their influence and their importance in Amherst. So along the way here, after you introduce the rest of uh, the guests, I'd appreciate knowing more about that. Carly? Yes. So why don't we start with, um, I think Alicia was going to begin by t telling us um, some of the things that have gone on in the past. Alicia Walker? Yeah, um, I just wanted to introduce myself. Hi, everyone. I am Alicia yeah. Walker. Um, I am Amherst Town Counselor at Large and also former co-chair of the Community Safety Working Group, which I chaired alongside Brianna Owen. Um, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about the group and what we did. Um, I think we found a way to really engage with the community in order to provide community-based solutions to issues regarding public safety and social justice. Um, specifically, we looked at how we could make Amherst more inclusive and more safe for um, BIPOC residents. And so that was really the base of our work and what started what became the CRESS program as well as the DEI um, department. There were a number of other recommendations that we also came up with, um, including but not limited to a youth empowerment center, the community um, cultural center, the BIPOC community cultural center, um, the changes in police policies, some including the use of force, 
um, others including low pretextual stops and low level offenses. Um, and so we're really also still hoping to see more of the fruits of our labor continue to come to fruition. And I, I don't think you mentioned it, but I want people to know that you are one of our newest town counselors in Amherst. Yes. Um, and also just to add that, so while the community safety working group was, um, I would agree with what Russ said, one of the hardest working safety hardest working groups I've ever been a part of. Um, we also faced a lot of challenges. Um, and so those challenges are what encouraged me to run for office um, because I just found that town uh, government bodies were lacking diversity of thought. Um, and so I really wanted to help the process and make sure that I could continue to see that these things were coming to fruition and were really followed through upon. Okay, well, thank you. Um, Russ, will you continue? Sure. Uh, I just want to say it was a real privilege to oh, be- Oh, wait, wait a minute. Let me, let me do my job. I should introduce you more properly. Uh, you have been a school principal. And you are an activist, anti-racism trainer, and longtime uh, leader of uh, social justice especially as it pertains to climate justice. Uh, I could go on and on. And we're talking about Russ Vernon Jones. <laughs> oh, that would be good to have said. <laughs> Hi, Russ, go ahead. Thank you, Carly. <laughs> um, as I started to say, it was a great honor to work with this group. Um, this group was a majority BIPOC committee. Um, BIPOC every that's black indigenous and people of color um, met every virtually every week for a year sometimes for hours uh, and i learned so much from working with the group and i think we've had quite an impact on the town first of all just simply being a majority bipoc group that advocated forcefully and powerfully uh, particularly under the leadership of uh, alicia and brianna um change the dynamics i think in in significant ways and then we've had three of our major uh proposals adopted and already implemented uh the creation of the crest program uh where we now have uh we hired eight responders um and a um, african-american man as director of the program uh, and they are currently providing services uh, in Amherst and do provide an alternative to the police. Uh, and they are truly anti-racist in their orientation. Uh, that was, and they've been thoroughly trained. Uh, we also have, as you said, the Department of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion with a director and an assistant director. And we have a new committee a long-term standing committee, also majority BIPOC, the Community Safety and Social Justice Committee. Mm. The so we've had an impact already, but I hope we have a much greater impact. Uh, Ms. Pat can speak about uh, recommendations yes. that Alicia mentioned in our first report would have not been implemented. But in our second report, we made 13 uh, recommendations. Only one of them has been implemented. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
probably the next most important one in that report is the establishment of a resident oversight board for the police. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of work for town council and town manager to uh, pick up our work and take it forward. And I want to hear more about it. We've got to squeeze in a quick break here. We're going to do that now. We're going to come back and we're going to hear from more of the members of the Community Safety Working Group in Amherst. I want to know, is the alternatives to police, is that program working? Which I think it is. I'm really excited to hear about it. We'll be back right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success. As we enter the season of giving, thank you for considering a gift to Junior Achievement. Throughout November, when you make a donation of $25 or more to JA of Western Massachusetts, you will be entered into a raffle for a pair of Boston Bruins Winter Classic tickets at Fenway Park. To make a donation, visit jawm.org forward slash donate to make a gift you can be proud of. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. I chose community mental health to serve populations that are often underserved. Megan is a therapist at ServiceNet. One core value at ServiceNet is to continue to learn, to really strive for the most effective treatment. If you're looking for a strong sense of community and collaboration, come to ServiceNet. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
And this is a very special edition of Black in the Valley, where we are joining in the honoring of the Community Safety Working Group in Amherst. Let me turn the microphone over to the co-host for this segment, along with Kari Tartikoff, <clears throat> excuse me, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Right. Thank you, Bill. We're going to hear next from Pat, Miss Pat, uh, who is chair of uh, the P PSA, PCA, is a business owner, is a social justice advocate and community organizer, and she has served on the Amherst Regionals in the Am Amherst Regional Public Schools. Jacqueline? Jacqueline? Pat. Are you gone? Pat, tell, give, us, give us 15 seconds more of who you are and your, your perspective and your participation in the Community Safety Working sure. Group, please. So my name is Pat Nanibako, and I'm a member of uh, Community Safety Working Group. First of all, I want to thank you for having us today and also to thank MS Media for the award and my fellow uh, CSS, CSWG members. And um, so from my perspective, I think that the CREST program, it's going well. I think the director, Mr. Miller, you know, has really engaged our community and spreading the word of what the program is all about. I also think that, um, CSWG was able to engage uh, the community when, when, uh, when we met for one year. It's really amazing to have intergenerational group of, uh, we have parents, uh, youth, uh, grandparents, and people from all, you know, uh, social work of life uh, to be able to trust each other and deliver to our community. I also want to recognize um, Seven Gen, our consultant and lead program. But moving forward, I think that um, CSWG recommended um, community safety, uh, social justice group, which I'm a member. And I would describe our group as a watch, watchdog to, to ensure that all the CSWG recommendations are implemented. We still have a lot of work ahead of us. And um, this is a, a budget season, so we're hoping, even though CREST was created, DEI program was created, but they are woefully underfunded. We would like the resident over, oversight board created. Um, we all are aware of the incident on um, July 5th of MS police misconduct against a majority BIPOC youth that still remain unresolved. If we had created the resident oversight board, perhaps they would have handled the situation. Uh, we will see SSJC would like to see the youth empowerment program created by BIPOC Cultural Center. Um, and I can go on with the rest of the that, uh, other recommendations. So we have challenges ahead of us, but I'm so proud of CSWG for the work that we did. Uh, it's one of the best group that, that I have ever, you know, I worked with. So I'm very appreciative and, and humble, you know, for the, for the award that we're getting tomorrow. Did I use up my time? <laughs> Carly, we have about a minute and a half left. 
Jacqueline? What we'd like to know is where where you see yourself going. You've been many places in this community, Pat. And where do you see yourself going in terms of change, community change? In a minute. Yes. So very quickly, we want mm -hmm. to keep pushing the envelope in, in terms of making sure that our town address racism uh, in our community. Um, whether it's you know, the staff, the resident, whatever, we are not stopping. We're, we're moving ahead to ensure that real change will continue to happen. It's a long uh, um, project process, but we're not giving up. I'm excited with our new group as well, the CSSJC, so um, to ensure that recommendations are implemented. And for those of our listeners who would like to attend the award ceremony to honor this remarkable group of people who are members who are the Community Safety Working Group, Carly, can you tell us one more time when and where this is, please? It's going to be tomorrow at the Augusta Savage Gallery. That's in New Africa House. Um, and I think it starts at 6.30, right, Alexis? That's right, 6.30. Okay, 6:30. we'll see you all there. Thank you all so very much. Thanks for all you do for our community. We are all in your debt. This has been a very special edition of Black in the Valley. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. In the United States, one in four women and one in seven men are victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. 60% of Americans know a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault. These are your neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, maybe even family members. 75% of Americans say they would step in and help if they saw even a stranger being abused. More and more people are stepping up and talking about it. Let's make it happen. Nelquist, New England Learning Center for Women in Transition, offering 24-hour crisis line support, walk-in appointments, counseling, safe plan, legal services, and supportive supervised children's visitation. If you or someone you know needs Nelquit, please reach out to them. They'll be there. 479 Main Street Greenfield, Nelquit.org, N-E-L-C-W-I-T.org, or call 772-0871. Live and local news for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.